Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. Lawmakers got some positive news this week as they prepare to craft a state budget for the next two years. A combination of higher tax revenue and lower than projected spending means a significant budget surplus for the state of Minnesota. But that doesn't mean tax increases are off the table. Probably coincidence, but the sun came out at the state capitol just as a budget surplus was being announced. I'm smiling today because this is really good budget news, budget stability news for this forecast. Plenty to smile about with a $1.5 billion projected surplus. On top of that, another half billion dollars goes directly to the state's budget reserve. Minnesota economy has... Management and budget officials say the forecast is nearly all good news. But they note several risk factors, like federal trade policy, the stock market, and the federal tax law that could negatively impact the state economy. We will develop a budget that maintains fiscal responsibility while protecting the reserves. Governor-elect Tim Walz is encouraged by the budget forecast, but says it's too soon to take tax increases, including the gas tax, off the table. I think it's irresponsible in any time to look at something without understanding what we're trying to get to, how we're trying to build that. Senate and House Republicans have a much different view. It certainly is a time that we should not be considering a gas tax. That'll be one of the things that uh, this kind of a surplus says we certainly can live within the resources that we have. I think uh, as a result of this surplus, um, I think we can stop talking about increasing taxes right now. But the new DFL House majority will be on the side of Governor-elect Walls. It's not um, a, a, a forecast that allows us to go into session and talk about a lot of new spending and tax cuts. That would not be fiscally responsible. If the economy does get in trouble, the state has an advantage it's never had before. The budget reserve is now over $2 billion. That is the biggest in state history. What do you want to see done with the budget surplus? Send your thoughts to Governor-elect Tim Walls, Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka, and House Speaker-designate Melissa Hortman. Just click on the Five Take Action section of KSTP.com. The University of Minnesota Board of Regents has named a lone finalist in the search for a new president. Joan Gable is the provost at University of South Carolina. Her past work includes at the University of Missouri as well as Florida State and Georgia State Universities. If selected, she would be the first female president in U of M history and would replace retiring president Eric Kaler. The regents say they like her resume even though she has no ties to Minnesota. To be uh, with someone who can recite things that I didn't know about Minnesota and the University of Minnesota as someone who's born here uh, is highly impressive. Gable has an interview set for Friday. If things go well, she could be hired by Christmas. There were two other top candidates, but they did not wish to be named publicly. People around the country can now visit the final resting place of former President George H.W. Bush and pay their respects. Crowds lined up to wave at the train carrying the 41st Commander-in-Chief's casket to College Station, Texas, on Thursday. Before that final ride, there was a second funeral at the same church in Houston where services for Barbara Bush were held in April. My hope is that in remembering the life of George Herbert Walker Bush and in honoring his accomplishments, we will see that we are really praising what is best about our nation. George H.W. Bush was buried at the Presidential Library at Texas A&M University. 
This is the first time in 12 years that this country said final farewell to a former president. During his service on Wednesday at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., partisan politics was set aside to pay respect for a man who served his country in so many honorable ways. President George H.W. Bush's final motorcade quietly passed the White House on the way to Washington's National Cathedral. In the front row, President Trump and three former presidents, soon joined by a fourth former president, George W. Bush, who greeted each one of them. After the president's body was carried to the altar, music selected by the late president was performed by the Marine Orchestra. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. After readings by his granddaughters, there were remarkable eulogies by presidential historian John Meacham, former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and former U.S. Senator Alan Simpson, who called the 41st president a rare man of humility in Washington. Those who travel the high road of humility in Washington, D.C. are not bothered by heavy traffic. Simpson's trademark sense of humor was followed by an emotional eulogy from the 43rd president, George W. Bush. When the history books are written, they will say that George H.W. Bush was a great president of the United States. He talked about his dad's service to country and family, now reunited with a daughter and wife who preceded him in death. A great and noble man. The best father a son or daughter could have. And in our grief, let us smile knowing that dad is hugging Robin and holding mom's hand again. Robin Bush was just three years old when she died of leukemia in 1954. The late President Bush recently told a granddaughter he was convinced Robin was the first one he'd see in heaven. Long before he was president, George H.W. Bush spent time here in Minnesota. During World War II, he trained as a fighter pilot at the Naval Air Station in Minneapolis, next to the current airport. Joe Mazin shows us the plane Bush flew in during his Navy career on display in Eden Prairie. He was so young and so in love. George Bush was engaged to her in 1943, his sweetheart Barbara, who he just met weeks after Pearl Harbor. Only World War II could separate them. That winter, the 19-year-old Navy fighter pilot was sent to the Twin Cities to train in this plane, now in the wings of the North Air Museum in Eden Prairie. People can read about history, and when they can come to the museum, um, it really brings it to life. So it's all authentic. Curator Bill Norris says Bush didn't like flying the open cockpit plane in the Minnesota cold. We know that he wrote home to his mother that it was so cold in Minnesota that by the time he put on enough clothing to keep from freezing to death, he could barely fly the airplane. During that same year, Bush also sent a letter to Barbara, writing, I love you, precious, with all my heart, and to know that you love me means my life. He was an American hero. But heroes are human. You could see the concern in his words to Barbara of his training, writing, we have so much to do and so little time to do it in. It is frightening at times. Something that a lot of people don't know, he was the youngest naval aviator of his time. When he sat in this plane, Bush could never imagine the life he and Barbara would lead, 
writing, You have made my life full of everything I could ever dream of. My complete happiness should be a token of my love for you. Well, the autograph came about when the plane was under restoration. Recently, Bush signed his old war plane, the same hand that wrote a love letter to his sweetheart long ago. The couple would have six children and be married for 73 years. Joe Mazin, 5 Eyewitness News. While in office, former President Bush also met with students in St. Paul. This was back in 1991. Dave Durenberger represented Minnesota in the U.S. Senate during that time. He says the president was a pleasure to work with because of his personal touch. He always expressed interest in you and why you took the position you took, as though in his own head he was formulating an appropriate place for him to be. Durenberger also says Bush could have easily lived a life of privilege, but instead devoted his life to serving our country. Up next, Andy Brem and Mike Erlinson will be here for political analysis. And as he prepares to leave office, Congressman Rick Nolan reflects on his time serving Minnesota's 8th District. 8th District Congressman Rick Nolan is nearing the end of his time in office. He announced back in February that he would not seek a fourth term Nolan sat down with Renee Passall of our Duluth affiliate WDIO to reflect on his career, his accomplishments, and what's next for him outside of Congress. There's not one moment, there's many moments. Rick Nolan said it's been such a privilege representing the people of the 8th District. He's proud of his accomplishments, which include being a strong advocate for mining. We got tariffs on Chinese, tariffs and countervailing duties on Chinese steel of 522%. I passed the uh, Polymet Land Exchange Bill in the House, but we're still hopeful of finding a way to get it through the Senate. And he brought money into the 8th to improve infrastructure. No, it's been 1.3 billion. That's money for roads, for bridges, for airports, for our port facility here. Nolan survived two brutal campaigns against Republican Stuart Mills. It's still a sweet victory. He did not take those for granted. Politics, it's a journey, you know, and sometimes it goes the way you want it to go, and sometimes it doesn't. And... As he traveled with his staff, he joked that he was supposed to avoid junk food. My wife tells him to keep me away from uh, White Castle and the caramel corn, but um, they're good at accommodating me. <laughs> <laughs> and they do still have some work to do. The session this week was canceled because of the death of President George H.W. Bush. Nolan says his passing serves as a reason to pause and reflect. A, a gentle but very important reminder of uh, the importance of civility in government and politics and uh, bipartisanship, not partisanship. But they will all be back next week and have to pass a resolution to fund the government. As for his replacement, Republican Pete Stauber, Nolan said they've offered assistance for the transition. I wish him nothing but the best. Um, he's a good man. I want him to be successful. Because leaders should support each other. Public service is, is, is noble and should be perceived as such. I'm Renee Passal for WDIO News. Nolan briefly staged a run for lieutenant governor alongside current Attorney General Lori Swanson. They lost in the August primary. Nolan has said he wants to spend more time with his family, including an adult daughter who's battling lung cancer. And he told the Duluth News Tribune he's had a few health scares of his own, including a heart attack just six weeks ago. And he really is one of Minnesota's great 
public servants, and we do wish him well and his family well. I know his daughter, who I've, I've met, has been struggling with uh, lung cancer. We wish them all uh, mm -hmm. the best. Uh, joining me now, Andy Brim and Mike Erlinson. Uh, I'm sure you worked with Rick Nolan from time to time over the years. This was his second tour of duty in the, in the U.S. House. Yeah, I mean, no question he was a wonderful member of Congress, uh, served the 8th Congressional District well. I can't remember what his first Congressional District number was. I think it was like three or something like that. Um, but, you know, a strong legislator, somebody who really rolled up his sleeves to try to get it done for working men and women in the country. So he'll be missed. And he had some hard-fought races with uh, Stuart Mills and Chip Cravac before that. Uh, but even as an opponent, I think most Republicans really respected Rick Nolan. Absolutely. I mean, I think Rick Nolan is probably the best retail politician the state has right now. I mean, here's a guy who knows how to campaign, knows how to win, and knows how to do it as a gentleman. I mean, I know that he's deeply respected on both sides of the aisle. So I wish him well, and I thank him for his service. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk now a little bit about the budget forecast that came out. Uh, Andy, I know you're probably licking your chops at this because we, we have a $1.5 billion budget <laughs> yeah. surplus, and yet uh, your friends across the aisle, the Democrats, uh, still will not dismiss the idea that taxes need to go up. Well, of course they won't. They never will. I mean, here's the reality. Minnesotans are overtaxed. That's why we have a surplus. I mean, Governor Dayton is somehow getting credit for doing some magnificent leadership. At the end of the day, we're one of the most highest tax states in the country. So, of course, we have a surplus. Now, we need to look at cutting spending, making sure we're competitive. But the, the idea that we're going to raise taxes even more is crazy. You know, sometimes coming off an election, especially one where Governor-elect Walls won by a wide margin, uh, they do get the idea that there, there is a mandate, and he talked about raising the gas tax and talked about doing a lot of these things. But then the reality sets in that you have a $1.5 billion surplus that voters didn't know about in November. How, how will they justify trying to raise taxes if they do? Well, I mean, first of all, we should thank Senator, I mean, uh, Senator and former governor, uh, soon to be uh, Mark Dayton, for his service to Minnesota as well, and for the leadership that did get our state to the position of fiscal responsibility. And as Tim Walsh called out in the segment, you know, he wants to maintain that fiscal responsibility. You know, the Republicans still control the state Senate, uh, albeit only by one vote. So the likelihood that tax increases will take place in Minnesota are pretty slim. I think it would be more likely that in the end, Democrats and Republicans agree to cut some taxes. Whether there'll be uh, taxes on income, I don't know. Um, and the gas tax, I think, is a separate uh, proposal completely. Uh, you know, Minnesotans drive around on the roads in our state, and they complain about them. We've got to do something about it, and the best way to do that is to look at increasing the gas tax. And they are separate issues, the budget and the gas tax and where the money goes. But most voters, most Minnesotans, don't understand or care about that difference. They know there's a $1.5 billion surplus, and then they wonder why taxes might go up. Well, listen, I think Minnesota voters are pretty smart, and people will tune into what this is. We can have a serious discussion about what are the best revenue sources for different needs. But at the end of the day, we talk about fiscal responsibility. All that happened here was that there was a huge tax increase. I mean, if families could just simply increase their revenue, that would be pretty easy fiscal responsibility. We need to talk about making St. Paul run better. Well, Melissa Hortman, the soon-to-be House Speaker, might have had the, the most temperate tone saying, look, this really isn't $1.5 billion. Inflation's not accounted for on the spending side. It's really more like $382 million, which is still a lot of money. But she says maybe it's not the time for tax cuts or a lot of new spending. Well, I mean, I think that's a great point uh, by the Speaker-elect. At the same time, uh, you know, when you look at putting together the budget for the state, it's not about whether you're raising taxes or cutting taxes. It's about whether we're delivering for Minnesota. Are we providing high-quality education? 
Are we providing the health care that Minnesotans need? These are the things that were the top issues in the campaign of 2017, and Democrats won virtually every, well, they won every statewide office, and they took back control of the Minnesota state legislature. Just a few seconds left. The Republicans were talking about maybe some targeted tax cuts, tax relief. Is that likely? Oh, I hope so. Again, it's about making Minnesota competitive. Right now, we're just simply not. All right. Andy and Mike, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. A lot to do at the state legislature with these new budget numbers. Up next, Catherine Tanucci and Kurt Zellers will be here for Face Off. We'll be back in two minutes. Wisconsin's Republican-controlled legislature passed some sweeping laws this week to limit the powers of the incoming Democratic governor and attorney general. Governor-elect Tony Evers would be prevented from reversing the changes once he takes office. The legislation drew protesters all week to the Capitol in Madison. Republicans say it's about ensuring a balance of power, but Evers and other Democrats call it a desperate power grab. The will of the people has uh, been officially um, been ignored by the legislature. Current Republican Governor Scott Walker has indicated he will sign those bills, but you can expect legal challenges in the coming months. Joining me now for Face Off, Catherine Tanucci and Kurt Zellers. Thank you both for being here. We don't have this issue in Minnesota because we don't have a lame duck session or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, but, Catherine, you worked at the state capitol for a number of years, and Kurt, I know, is, is House Speaker. I want to get both of your viewpoints on this. We've seen this also happen in Michigan where they're trying to change some laws that reduce the powers of the governor who's of an opposite party. Uh, is this just a, a product of the way our system is? You get elected in November, but you're still in office until January. Yeah, we're, I guess we're lucky to not have a system like this in Minnesota because this is really dangerous. To be clear, what they're trying to do is undo the results of the election. And that is, I mean, it's the opposite of the democratic process. Of course, they're elected and, and can do what they please, but it's um, really dangerous to try and limit. And it seems unwise to me. It seems a bit short-sighted in that why restrict a governor? I mean, they may, the Republicans may win the governor's office again in the future, and it seems very short-sighted to try and limit, um, you know, the Governor Walker's opponent and the governor-elect of Wisconsin. And the Republicans, their argument is, well, we're trying to protect some things that he wants to undo, and they point out that Republicans were elected to control yeah. their House and Senate there, and so they're just asserting their will, and they're still holding election certificates. Yeah, and to your point, the, the voters elected divided government, just like they did here in Minnesota. You know, some of the stuff, I, I read through a lot of it, and there's a lot of inside baseball. I'm a Senator Fitzgerald. You know, my fellow Republicans scream some of these, you know, the end of democracy as we know it when Obama was elected president. I think it's just a lot of over the top. There are some things that, yes, limit the governor's ability to spend money or to authorize some contracts, but as a whole, it's a lot of inside baseball. And again, if it's, you know, sour grapes on one side, it's probably sour grapes on the other side as well. And if it was so horrible, I don't think Colin Peterson would be negotiating so hard for the farm bill in D.C. right now because that's a lame duck yeah, session. Yeah, during a as lame well. duck session. And Wisconsin, no. Uh stranger to these types of things, especially <laughs> under Governor Walker when he went after collective bargaining rights early yeah. on in his tenure, and he's going out this way. So fascinating to keep an eye on what's going on across the river in Wisconsin. We'll keep an eye on that. Let's talk about the legislative session here in Minnesota. Uh, Tim Walls will be coming out with a budget here in a, in a month or two. He's got $1.5 billion to work with. Uh, what is that going to mean in terms of tax cuts or tax increases or spending? 
Well, it's phenomenal news for Minnesota, first of all. And Kurt and I can both tell you that this is much, much better news than coming in and trying to build a budget to fix a $6.5 billion deficit the opposite direction. Now, I think the, the speaker doesn't it point it out like there's reason to be cautious here. Um, but there are, there are lots of things, lots of priorities that um, I know lawmakers and the governor have and investments that we need to continue to make to keep Minnesota on the right track. Governor Dayton deserves enormous credit for turning the state's budget around in the last eight years. And of course, the economy is doing much better. That's great news. We should be cautious. It won't always be this great. But we've made wise fiscal um, investments and in our state's budget that will put us on, on the right track going forward. And it's going to be interesting to see now what they decide to do with this. When I sat through these news conferences with Republicans and Democrats, it was interesting yeah. how the Republicans were kind of taking that glass half full approach and Democrats glass half empty. Uh, yeah. Which is it? And, and are Republicans going to be able to hold off tax increases that some Democrats think that's why they were elected uh, right. in the first place. And I think, I think credit should go all around. Having been there for part of this uh, economic improvement, as Catherine said, you know, un unfortunately I inherited a $6 billion deficit along with Governor Dayton. Uh, Republicans in the House and Senate also helped to get us to this point. I, I just had base political advice, not partisan, you know, being a Republican or Democrat. I don't think the governor should hamstring himself in any way. We should raise taxes or we're going to spend the whole damn works. Just give yourself the room because there will be another forecast in February, and that will be the actual forecast. This is kind of the lowball estimate of what we think is going to happen. Um, but I wouldn't hamstring myself in any way. And to say we're going to have a gas tax when we're sitting here with a big, giant surplus, roads are a one-time expense but an ongoing repair. Spend it on new roads one time, but don't raise the gas just because that's something you've promised on the trail. All right. Well, it could be a major debate, as it always <laughs> is in a budget year. It'll be fascinating to watch. Catherine and Kurt, thanks yeah. for being here. A local principal is honored for her support of military members. That story when we come back. A West Metro school principal was honored this week for her commitment to fellow teachers serving in the military. We really do believe as a public school that it is our duty to educate the citizenry and to have a hero, a true hero, to do that with us. Miranda Morton was nominated for the Patriot Award by one of her staff at Agamim Classical Academy. Staff Sergeant Rick Walkholes has served in the Army for 20 years, but this is his first year teaching at the school. I would guess that if I was deployed and was gone for a year, she'd still have a job waiting for me because it's such an emphasis at this school of patriotism and honoring soldiers. He says Morton is always flexible for him, knowing he has a duty to both school and country. Well, we'd like to see what you have to say about at issue. Send us your feedback and let us know what issues you'd like to see on the show. You can write to us at issue at KSTP.com. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for my name, Tom Hauser, or at issue. You can also find me on Twitter at T Hauser KSTP. And that is all the time we have for now. We hope to see you back here again next week for another edition of At Issue.